Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. These myths die very, very hard, but they are myths. And the mythic nature of these assumptions, it was internalized by a number of Arab leaders in Bahrain, in UAE, and elsewhere. And that doesn't mean that the Arab street loves the state of Israel. It doesn't mean that they've given up on the Palestinians. It doesn't. But they realize that the benefits of a peace relationship with Israel far outweigh these shortcomings. My guest is Michael Oren, Israel's former ambassador to the United States. Stay tuned. Full Disclosure airs on Spotify, NPR One, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Subscribe and rate us. Over the airwaves, we're now grateful to be on WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C. Joining me from Jaffa is Michael Oren, Israel's ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013, born in New York, raised in New Jersey, published in so many major newspapers and magazines in the United States and abroad. Uh, Oren authored the New York Times bestseller Power, Faith, and Fantasy, America in the Middle East, 1776 to the present. And his latest foray is into fiction writing. How are you, sir? I am excellent. Good to be with you, Robin. Greetings. Thank you. I want to uh, just to explain for everyone that you were a U.S. citizen and you became an Israeli citizen in 1979. Yeah, and you had to renounce dual citizenship or U.S. citizenship to become ambassador in 2009. I did. I did. It wasn't easy. I cried. And, uh, you know, they, they take a big sterling silver hole puncher and punch your passport right through the heart of the eagle. You know, it was, it was excruciating. Um, but, you know, I did it. it. They couldn't make me less American. I'm still, you know, um, I hate to say this, I'm a Patriots fan. Oh. Uh, I probably alienated half your, half your listeners right now. Uh, football fan, baseball fan, following the World Series right now. And, um, and I would have had to renounce it again because I was elected to Knesset when I came back from Washington. And then I became a member of Israel's government, so I'd have to renounce it again and again and again. Uh, but... My family, my, my parents still live in the same house I grew up in, in a small town in New Jersey. So, you know, they can they can take away my passport, but they can't take away my Americanism. So it is it is said that you uh, you had dealt with anti-Semitism in your youth. I guess it was in elementary school or was it at a Catholic school that I read somewhere? Well, I grew up in a Catholic neighborhood. I was the only Jewish kid in the neighborhood. Uh, Sundays were rough. Easter's were really rough. Um, and, uh, and I learned to, to, to fight at an early age. I really did. And uh, I encountered different types of anti-Semitism as I grew up. I, I, I played sports in college and, you know, a lot of anti-Semitism there. It was different types of anti-Semitism. I sort of, you know, went from being responsible for killing Christ to maybe having too much power and too much money. Um, and, uh, and, and then certainly in academia and then certainly into diplomacy, you encounter all sorts of types of interest, anti-Semitism. It, it just keeps morphing. Uh, what's interesting is, um, you know, when I wrote a, a memoir about my time in Washington, it was called Ally. And, um, and I wrote about my anti-Semitic experiences. And this book came out five years ago. And people said, wow, that doesn't look like America. You know, we never had this. We don't know this type of anti-Semitism in America. And nobody says that anymore, Robin. I think anti-Semitism has become such a reality for, for American Jews that uh, they don't doubt some of my story of growing up in an anti-Semitic environment. What did you think when, uh, during the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, I'm sure you're asked about it a lot, August 2017, uh, the chants that night with the torches and the tiki lamps, Jews will not replace us, is what the Unite the Right rally, the white supremacists chanted. Yeah, just watch the, the Borat movie where uh, Borat has a, a cake maker putting that icing on the cake saying Jews will not replace us. And the, and the, and the, the baker doesn't bat an eyelash putting it on the cake. It's all very disturbing. Um, whether it's anti-Semitism from the right, anti-Semitism from the left, anti-Semitism on campuses, um, very disturbing. And I, I, I wish I could say with some confidence that it was going to get better. Um, I don't see any sign of it improving, uh, certainly in the near future. And um, one of the great difficulties we face now, and I'm involved in this politically because I remain very politically involved at, just in Israeli politics, but also in, in U.S., Israel, and Israeli-American Jewish affairs, is actually getting a, an agreed-upon definition of what constitutes anti-Semitism. Uh, we can't even agree on that today. So we're experiencing something that we actually don't agree on in, in our definition, and it's difficult to fight something uh, that you can't define. Start with BDS, boycott, divest, sanction. I mean, the uh, the infamous policy that you hear about on college campuses, you hear that to kind of isolate the state of Israel, uh, to, to avoid its products, to protest its treatment of the Palestinians and 
its role in the broader Middle East and in human rights. I get asked this a lot. Is that fundamentally an anti-Semitic impulse? Just like if you were to say boycott, divest, and sanction Saudi Arabia, is that an anti-Arab impulse? Well, it's anti-Semitic insofar as Israel's being singled out. And that's the, the definition of anti-Semitism, not of Israel, not even of American Jews. It's, it's the definition uh, of the European Union. Um, and if Israel's being singled out and saying, we are going to only boycott the state of Israel, we're not going to boycott China over Tibet, we're not going to boycott Turkey uh, over Cyprus, we're not going to talk about India and Kashmir. I mean, there are about 200 uh, territorial conflicts throughout the world, only singling out one conflict and only one side in the conflict. That's inherently anti-Semitic because that's anti one of the aspects of, of anti-Semitism is singling out Jews. But beyond that, um, BDS uh, tries to just dissemble its purpose, its good objective. Many young people, even young American Jews who support BDS, uh, think that they're protesting Israeli policy in the West Bank or in Gaza, um, when in fact BDS aspires to destroy the state of Israel. And you can actually look at its manifesto and the people who run BDS. It's about ending the Jewish state. So Jews are not only being singled out, they're being singled out as the only people in the world who doesn't deserve self-determination in their homeland. So it's doubly anti-Semitic. And, uh, you know, people can protest Israeli policies. Hey, you know, I protest Israeli policies. Lots of protests going on here. Um, but it has to be within the context of understanding that the Jews are a people that we're not going to be singled out and that we deserve self-determination in our homeland. Uh, you were ambassador to the United States when this happened. Uh, I remember this infamous diplomatic incident in March of 2010. I'm reading from The Atlantic. Why Israel slapped Joe Biden with a surprise settlement plan. Mm -hmm. This was something that uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister then and now uh, did, that uh, Joe Biden was on his trip back to the United States when something was announced, assuming that it would not be announced or that something else was going to happen. And then the, the international press broadly took this as a humiliation of the Obama administration. And it was no secret that Netanyahu and Obama did not see eye to eye. How were you guys processing that on the ground back then, 10 years ago? If you if you could see me on this podcast, you'd see that I have I have a, a nose, nose shortage of gray hair. Most of the gray hairs were from that incident. Um, I'll never forget uh, accompanying uh, Vice President Biden's motorcade into the bottom of the hotel in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden his advisors came charging at me with their phones open, saying, "What the hell is this? What the hell is this?" It was a different expletive, and uh, and we learned about a a plan by the Interior Ministry in seven years' time to build several housing units in a, a neighborhood in what had been Jordanian Jerusalem. It wasn't quite East Jerusalem, it was Northwest Jerusalem, but it had been areas that Israel had, we say liberated, other people say captured in 1967. Um, and you know, Biden was a little bit upset about it, but uh, the Obama administration decided to make a real crisis about it. And um, returning with the vice president to Washington, I was summoned to the State Department. One does not, as an ambassador, not want to be summoned. It's nice to be invited, but not summoned. Um, and we had quite a conversation. Again, um, I got to plug a different book, the Ally book, uh, my uh, my journey across the Arab, the, the Israeli-American divide uh, was also a New York Times bestseller, a controversial book. And I talked about my time in Washington and I talked about that incident, uh, what went on behind the scenes. Um, let me say that uh, you know, Joe Biden has a long history with the state of Israel. And uh, going back to Golda Meir back in the early 70s, he's been around a long time. Um, and is, is, he has is what we call in Israel, he has Israel in his heart. Um, he's of that generation that remembers the Six-Day War. And uh, many politicians don't, especially younger politicians. I don't think uh, Barack Obama uh, remembered the Six-Day War. And uh, those who remember that, that period remember a time when, when Israel's uh, existence was very much, very much hung in the balance and couldn't be taken for granted. And that has influenced his policy toward us uh, ever since. That doesn't mean there are not policy differences, and there are two main ones on the Palestinian issue, but I think even more importantly strategically on the Iranian issue. Now, we do know that uh, U.S. Jews tend to favor Democratic candidates going back a good half a century with about, uh, I, I think, a mean or median of 71 percent of Jewish voters choosing the Democrat and only 25 percent choosing Republicans. And in Hillary Clinton's case, it was 71 percent. Obama did see a low support of 69 percent in 2012 to Romney's 30. But in 2008, it was 78 uh, percent. A lot of people are curious to see how the election in a bit more of a, uh, than a week turns out. But it brings to mind the idea of when you step back and you look at Netanyahu and uh, Trump over the past four years, and a lot of, of, of uh, 
And it's been a mutual admiration society. Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, Might have kind of looked the other way when certain things happen with decisions about the Golan Heights and uh, this this kind of frenzied diplomacy with secondary and tertiary Arab nations, maybe in the final 30 to 40 days of the uh, administration. Why, from an investing point of view, would you you know, if you're Netanyahu, if you're his party, put all your eggs in this basket of the Trump administration, when right now, looking ahead to the election, there's a more than even chance that a Biden and the Democratic Party are resurgent. Well, I don't want to be in the position of being the spokesman for this government. That's why I got out of government. (laughs) I can give you an analysis. Uh, And the analysis is uh, Israeli policy going back, you know, basically to the last 1940s is that you you, you make an alliance with the person who's willing to make alliance with you at that given moment. In the 1950s, in the 1960s, it was with France. Um, And we fought the Six Day War here without American arms. We fought it with French arms. Uh, and then the French sort of switched sides. But um, and so here was a president who was willing to, say, move the embassy uh, from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, was willing to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, was willing to uh, punish the Palestinians for not coming to the negotiating table, uh, whereas in the past they, the Palestinians were rewarded for not coming to the table, um, was willing to condemn Israel's condemners in the UN. It's it's a little factoid that's overlooked. Um, Under this current administration was the only time the UN Security Council met in its history to condemn aggression against Israel. One time. Um, And so that was deeply appreciated by the people of Israel. And I think most importantly was the decision to withdraw from the 2015 Iranian nuclear deal, uh, which was perceived here and throughout most of the Middle East as a dire strategic threat. And uh, to reimpose sanctions on Iran and, and to it put the Iranian economy into a nosedive so that Iran would not spend billions of dollars on terror and efforts to destroy us. So it was a very, very important move, very popular move here. But keep in mind, we're 7,000 miles away. And what goes on in American internal politics, domestic politics, doesn't always reach the Israeli press. And, um, and certainly... The controversies, the deep political polarization, even the violence in the United States doesn't necessarily get reported here. So people here see a president who's doing all these wonderful things. So, of course, they're going to be supportive of him, but they not thinking long term. And you know, when I appear on Israeli uh, press or even when I uh, brief Israeli decision makers and security personnel behind the scene, I said, you know, keep in mind there are elections coming up. And we could have a different administration with a different approach. Um, and we should be doing everything possible to maintain to the greatest possible degree, given the polarization in the United States, we should be doing everything possible to maintain bipartisan support uh, for the U.S.-Israel alliance. You're quoted as saying that this election is a, is a real parlous point for Israeli-Iran uh, relations in that uh, the, the election results here could trigger Hezbollah, which is Iran's proxy. Yes, uh, you saw that headline today, huh? Um, yeah. Yeah, yes, it was a briefing I gave yesterday. And here it, here's how it works. It's, it's a little complicated. Uh, follow. It's this. Um, because of America's withdrawal from the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, because of the reimposition of sanctions, if Donald Trump is reelected, the regime in Tehran will face a terrible dilemma. Either it will enter into negotiations uh, with Donald Trump under probably humiliating conditions, there'll be sanctions, um, or it can attempt to destabilize the Middle East and prove to the United States that unless the United States plays ball uh, with Iran, um, Iran can cause a lot of trouble. And they've tried to do it in the past with Saudi Arabia by firing missiles at Saudi Arabia. It didn't quite work. Um, So the next obvious target is Israel. And Iran has surrounded Israel with tens and tens of thousands of rockets, 130,000 rockets in Lebanon alone. And uh, Iran could give instructions to its proxies to fire these rockets which would put Israel in a very difficult bind. Uh, the entire country could be targeted. Some of these rockets are, are uh, cruise missiles that can be individually targeted toward our strategic infrastructure. And so our army would have to go into these 200 villages in southern Lebanon under which Iran has placed its rockets. And that is precisely what the Israeli army is training to do today, to go from uh, village to village, house to house. And that's going to create tremendous difficulties, legal difficulties, because um, civilians will come, you know, within the field of fire, which is precisely what Hezbollah and Iran want. So um, very complicated situation. So while um, my my goal in, in, in making that press conference was to show that, that this administration, this election, 
can impact us in ways that we're, most of the public may not be thinking about. Here's one of them, and it's a big one. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Oren, Israel's former ambassador to the United States. He served uh, the Netanyahu administration between 2009 and, and 2013. He authored the New York Times bestseller, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, America in the Middle East, 1776 to the Present. Uh, and his latest foray is into fiction writing. I would have to, I, I'd love to ask you about Iran in that, uh, you know, full disclosure, I am an Iranian-born Jew. Uh, and Iran still has the largest Jewish population in the Middle East outside of Israel. I'm told it numbers anywhere from 10 to 12,000. And I hear these stories from my parents that in the time of the Shah, these countries were actually close. Very close. Uh, they would exchange students. They would exchange business. The Shah would go to Israel and take a tour of medical equipment and buy uh, dialysis machines, and there'd be externships for doctors. Uh, when Iran had very serious earthquakes, uh, IDF people would come in and uh, search an investigation and in helping set up clean water. Uh, is there something that is fundamentally anti-Semitic about, I guess, the Persian culture and Iran? Uh, or, or are we looking at the past 40 years as an aberration? I think it's an aberration. I mean, look at the Bible. <laughs> you know, it was, it was King Cyrus, uh, the Persian king, who enabled us to come out of exile and rebuild our temple, and is remembered very fondly um, in this country, and, and Darius too. So, and, and we had a, 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 the years in which uh, the Jewish people lived in, in Persia and thrived in Persia are some of the great golden eras of our history. And that ended only in 1979, in 1979 with the Islamic uh, Revolution, and everything changed overnight. And I, I still believe that the, the majority of Iranian people um, uh, want peace with Israel, uh, feel no animosity whatsoever uh, toward the Jewish people, uh, and that we can get back to that point at some point, at some stage in the future. That's my hope. Um, and uh, it, it's a source of, I think, solace for me, if you will. Um, and that our policies toward Iran are, are, are geared entirely toward this regime and not at all toward the Iranian people. But has it worked? Has it worked? I mean, there was a brief opening under the Obama administration where this enormous carrot was dangled. I remember the, the McDonald's had a website to seek interest about potential franchisees in Tehran. There were people right. telling me, Farzad, if you could open a Chipotle in Shiraz, your home city, you would be a millionaire several times over. And that was very short-lived, as you know. The, uh, the, the Trump administration scuppered all of that within its first 90 days. Yeah, but it's, it, it happened well before Trump came into office. It came well before. Uh, the, the Iran nuclear deal of 2015 was designed to uh, transform uh, Iran into what President Obama called a responsible regional power. And what Iran do, did was to take both the legitimacy and the money <laughs> bestowed on it by this agreement. And it's talking about very vast sums because people, all these business people like McDonald's streamed to Tehran to cut deals um, take the money, and it didn't build hospitals and schools. It, it, it invested all this money in terror, and it began to conquer large swaths of the Middle East. And if you look at the map um, before 2015 and the map in the two years after 2015, the area conquered by Iran is extraordinary. And, um, and it, it just didn't work and at all. It was 100% didn't work. And, um, you know, you can make a case and say, well, you know, at least Iran didn't make a nuclear weapon. Our big fear in Israel was that it would keep the agreement, not that it would violate the agreement, because the agreement has, has an ex expiration date. It has with these sunset clauses. So Iran could do the following. And I'm going to try to keep this. This is, this is Iran's uh, plan. This was the regime's plan. And keep in mind, these, these are the people who invented chess, so they can play on three different uh, boards at the same time. One board was to keep the Iranian nuclear deal and get a lot of money and legitimacy. The other board was to conquer territory, establish military bases, and surround Israel with tens of thousands of weapons, of rockets. Then, when the deal expired, it was to rush ahead and create not just one nuclear weapon, but 100 nuclear weapons. And if Israel tried to stop it, we would be deterred by these thousands and thousands of rockets. It was a brilliant plan. And then America withdrew from the deal. And once America withdrew from the deal, the European businessmen said, listen, we're not going to do business with Iran. We'd rather do business with the United States. And the whole plan, um, at least it didn't quite fall apart, but it, it went into deep freeze. And now the question, it, it, I personally am not going to get involved in this election in the United States. I think that's improper. As you mentioned before, I'm not even a citizen of the United States. But I will strongly advocate against renewing the Iran nuclear deal um, because it didn't work. It endangered every person in this country, including my children and grandchildren. It endangered the vast majority of people throughout the entire Middle East. It didn't work. 
Um, I wish it had, but it didn't. Uh, over over no forty over forty years, hasn't there always seemed to have been a grand bargain on the table for Iran to kind of you know to step back to indulge in all of the fruits of commerce and normalization and uh, uh, you know its rusty equipment for its oil industry, which has really stagnated over four decades. That there was a significant carrot put out there as well. If they finally recognized Israel or turned away from from proxy wars and the like. Well, at the risk of saying something controversial, you know, I'm a, um, I have my doctorate in, in modern Middle Eastern studies, and, and um, a big part of my studies was the study of Islam. Um, I read the Quran for an entire year. It was a great year. Um, and read medieval Islamic philosophy. Um, and I think there's a tendency in the West, particularly among Western elites, to say, well, you know, this Islamic thing is just, it's just an expression of, of frustration, of fears. Um, if we offer enough incentives, enough money, enough McDonald's um, uh, franchises, then, then people will put this Islamic nonsense aside. But that's a, a fundamental misreading, and I would even argue that it's a fundamental disrespect for the Islam of this regime. And that Islam mandates that this regime be uh, expansionist, that it, it gain hegemony over the Middle East, and no amount of incentives is going to disincentivize them from doing that. Um, I think that's a Western fantasy. I think it's a, a an actual type of Western prejudice, and um, and they are who they are, and nothing is really going to change it. It can they can be deterred, but I don't think they can be bought off. And that's really what we're talking about: is buying someone off and saying, you know, we give you enough money, and you're going to just get going to get rid of your religion. And I think that's a a big mistake. What about Iran as such a beneficiary of of the United States foray into Iraq, right? There used to be a check on Iran naturally with Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. Now that's a sphere of influence for Tehran. Right on your border is Syria, where Bashar al-Assad owes a tremendous amount of his survival by the skin of his teeth to Tehran. I mean, you can argue that the Islamic Republic has kind of been in a, in a default empire building for 20 years. It's uh, and it has, you know, um, I don't know. Often I'm, I'm pigeonholed into saying being a, a conservative person. Um, back in, in 2003, I earned the ire of all the neocons by testifying in Congress against the Iraq War. And it's, it's actually when I began to form relationships with some of the uh, Democratic congressmen uh, who were very important to me when I came back to Washington, you know, six years later. Um, and I was against the Iraq War uh for many reasons, but one of the key reasons was that I understood from history that America would lose its stomach for state building. Uh, the British lost their stomach, they left. The French lost their stomach, they left. The America would lose its stomach and leave, and that the Iranian border would move 800 uh, miles uh, westward. I said this in Congress, and it happened. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish I had been wrong. I really wish I had been wrong. And uh, and yes, the, one of the great, if not the great beneficiary of, of America's involvement in Iraq has been Iran. So much so, Robin, that when I mentioned those missiles in the hands of Hezbollah, we're also facing missiles aimed at us in the hands of pro-Iranian Shiite militias in Iraq. Is this expansion what really shook the Arab Middle East broadly? into a different position, especially in the wake of the Arab Spring, something happened, and you were there as ambassador, where uh, where I, I don't know what it was, but suddenly we were hearing that Riyadh was tighter with Israel than it had ever been, or that Egypt, after the fall of the Muslim Brotherhood and al-Sisi returns to power, is having weekly calls with Netanyahu. And in fact, uh, the Arab street, you know, while it's not monolithic, did not erupt when the embassy was moved. Not at all. Uh, the Arab street, or the broadly Islamic street, did not erupt when the United States took out the military leader of Iran. Something shifted. Can you pinpoint to when it was over this past decade in terms of, of the balance of power of the Middle East uh, in terms of, you know, enemy of my enemy? I, I want to say it's not one thing, but it's many things. Um, it's Israel's emergence as a, as a, a technological powerhouse, um, as a military power. We, we're generally listed as the eighth most powerful country in the world, and even though we're only 10 million people in the, a state the size of New Jersey. Um, and at a time when the United States is withdrawing from the Middle East, um, the presence of a, of a stable uh, military power is very attractive to some of our neighbors. 
There is the instability in some of these countries. You mentioned Egypt, and Israel has quietly helped um, Egypt in fighting ISIS in Sinai. A terrible a civil war went on there. It didn't, wasn't reported very widely in the West, but a terrible civil war. Uh, we've been aiding them. There was the Iran nuclear deal. <laughs> I can't say this. It, it, Iran emerged from that deal so, so powerful at a time with America's withdrawing and what created a vacuum. That vacuum was filled by the Russians and filled by the Turks. And by the way, a lot of these uh, Arab countries are as, at least as afraid of the Turks as they are of the Arabs, even though the Turks, you know, they support Islamic extremists of the Sunni variety, not the Shiite variety. Uh, Erdogan is very close to Hamas. So these Arabs regime found themselves, I'm not making a pun here, between Iraq and a hard place. And, uh, and in the absence of the United States, they turned to that one country that was stable, uh, militarily um, proficient, and, and willing to cooperate in their defense. And in addition, give them modernity in terms of Israeli high tech. So it was all beneficial. Um, and I think that the Arab Spring also proved that uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and certainly not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was the core conflict in the Middle East. You know, when I first came to Washington um, in dealing with the, the White House, uh, I would hear on a regular basis um, that these were the core conflicts. Arab-Israeli conflict is the, conf is the core conflict. Palestinian-Israeli conflict is the core of that conflict. The core of that conflict is the Jerusalem issue and the settlement issue. Um, um, I had one national security advisor said if God himself came down and offered the administration to solve one conflict on earth – it wouldn't be, you know, starvation in Africa. It wouldn't be, you know, Tibet or any of these other issues. It would be the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because that would be a domino effect and all other Middle Eastern conflicts could be solved. Now, that, that whole myth collapsed and collapsed very quickly uh, with the Arab Spring of 2011. And um, um, I had, at the time, the United States was set to, was poised to cast a veto on a UN Security Council resolution uh, condemning Israeli settlement policy in the West Bank. And uh, the administration came to me and said, we are 100% certain, 100%, that if we cast this veto, the protesters in Tahrir Square will run down the street and set our embassy on fire. This is going to happen. And the next day, the United States cast its veto. And you know what happened, Robin? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just what happened when they, when they recognized Jerusalem as the capital or recognized Israeli sovereignty on the Golan Heights. So these myths die very, very hard, but they are myths. And the mythic nature of these assumptions it was internalized by a number of Arab leaders in Bahrain, in the UAE, and elsewhere. And that doesn't mean that the Arab street loves the state of Israel. It doesn't mean that they've given up on the Palestinians. It doesn't. But they realize that the benefits of a peace relationship with Israel far outweigh the shortcomings. Sudan... Fast forward now to 2020 is now the third Arab state to normalize ties uh, with Israel as part of the U.S. broker deal since August. Uh, you know, uh, big hand in that is is one of the uh, uh, great eminences of deputies of of the president, his son-in-law Jared Kushner, who's a observant uh, Jew from New Jersey, I believe. Right down the road from me. Yeah. Right down the road from you. Uh, are, are you looking at these deals cynically? When I think back to the fact that, you know, it's one thing for two rulers to declare this notionally. It's another thing for it to go through parliaments. It's another thing for there to be trust but verification. It's another thing for Saudi Arabia to have some of its proxy powers in the Gulf to do this before it ever dares consider the topic of normalization with Israel, even though Mohammed bin Salman might often be on the phone with Netanyahu. I think it's difficult. It's, it's not one piece arrangement fits all. It's not cookie cutter. So, for example, we've had peace now for, well, for over 40 years with Egypt, um, but we don't, have, we don't have normalization with Egypt. We've had peace with uh, Jordan um, for 25 years. I was actually at that, uh, that peace signing agreement. I was an advisor to Yitzhak Rabin. Um, we've had peace, but no normalization. With the UAE and Bahrain, um, we've had peace and we've had normalization. Boy, we've had very rapid normalization. And we now have multiple flights every week and they're coming here and we're going there. And I, I've now had Zoom talks with people in the Gulf. I mean, this, this has never happened with Egypt and Jordan. Um, and then the Sudan. Sudan is, is a different um, is a different species entirely because this is a country that, um, first of all, it doesn't border us. It hasn't been engaged in combat with us uh, since 1948, but it's also an undeveloped, underdeveloped country. It's not an oil-rich country, and it has nothing to either get from Israel in terms of high-tech. It's not going to use our high-tech so quickly. Uh, in terms of mutual investment, it's not there. Um, you know, it has a symbolic value, certainly, um, 
and <laughs> I keep on plugging my own books. Forgive me. I wrote a book about the Six Day War uh, called Six Days of War. And I talked about the three no's of Khartoum after the Six Day War. No peace, no negotiations, no recognition. Now we have that country saying yes, 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 and not no, no, no. Uh, so symbolically it's important, but it's also important because um, – the thousands of rockets that have been fired at us by Hamas and Islamic Jihad from Gaza, those rockets are made in Iran. They're not made in Gaza for the most part, and they get into Gaza through the Sudan. So if we can f stop the flow of rockets from Sudan into Israel, that will be a major strategic benefit. I have to ask you, really, and it's not out of being naive, if they were to just stop this, if they were to stop with the rockets, does that existentially, is it axiomatic that Iran could no longer exist because it is definitionally a, a, a an Islamic republic, an Islamic empire, that it has to be against Israel, the little Satan and the great Satan? Or can it just coexist as is without being a, a nefarious player in the Middle East? You'd have to find an Islamic justification for that coexistence. You know, I'll give you a story which I remember um, from Anwar Sadat. And... Um, and when Zadat signed the, the, the Camp David Accords in 1979, he went on Egyptian television and uh, he gave a, a, a sort of an Islamic disquisition why this agreement could be justified in, in Islamic terms. He talked about the Hudabiyah Treaty, which Muhammad had made with the, the Jews of the Arabian Peninsula. It was a truce. Um, and, you know, he could find that type of justification. So, but... Um, you couldn't have an open uh, ceasefire. You, even Hamas doesn't talk about a peace with Israel. It sometimes talks about a hudna. It talks about a, a truce with Israel, which is Islamic truce, a hudna. And uh, conceivably, but I think it's very difficult for the Iranian regime to even agree to an Islamic type of peace with Israel because this is, this is their DNA. This is who they are. It is their raison d'etre. And um, they can be deterred. That's all. Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, I'd like to shift the conversation again to Riyadh. And uh, Haim Saban, the Israeli-American billionaire, he was quoted at a, a Biden-Harris campaign event praising Jared Kushner for his work on Israeli accords with the UAE and Bahrain. He said that uh, Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reportedly told him that he couldn't have joined Bahrain and the UAE in normalizing with Israel because doing so would, quote, get him killed by Iran, Qatar, and my own people. Yes, I can understand that. And again, again, you got to take Islam very seriously. Uh, the, the, the legitimacy of the Saudi dynasty is deeply, deeply embedded in the custodianship of the Saudi uh, dynasty for the two holiest cities in Islam. And that makes that dynasty sort of fundamentally different <laughs> than the dynasties, say, in Bahrain and the United Arab Republic. Much more difficult. I don't mean it's, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen at some point or it can happen in a different way at some point. I will not be surprised if it happens in different ways. Um, and it doesn't mean it's not happening, as you know, behind the scenes and maybe not so much behind the scenes. But it does it does create a, a, a uh, I would say, a check on uh, Saudi foreign policy making, certainly toward Israel. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013. Uh, I have to ask you about Syria, right there on the border with Israel. And these countries have been enemies. They have coexisted. And I, I always ask myself, uh, when all this stuff, the brinksmanship was happening with Bashar al-Assad and Syria turned into a failed state over the past decade, were the United States and Israel privately rooting for this guy to hold power? Because it's more about the enemy you know versus, say, an amorphous ISIS trans-Arab nationalist, uh, viciously anti-Israel party taking over? I can't speak for the United States. Um, I can speak for Israel. And the answer emphatically is no. Uh, we wanted them gone. And but gone with what? Gone with what? You saw that the vacuum in place, was, it, mm -hmm. it, it did default into kind of, you know, I don't know, the, the free Syrian army was there for a while, but it was him plausibly against ISIS and then Tehran and, and Moscow intervene and rescue his regime. We, we preferred a Syria that was not a unified state. They couldn't threaten us with an army. Remember, Assad is the guy with the army. He's the one with hundreds of tanks and planes and rockets. And were the Syrian state to break up into statelets, uh, it would be much less threatening to us, actually much threatening to other states in the region as well. And so, yes, we, we wanted him gone. Um, our intelligence didn't get it accurate, I must say. Neither did American intelligence. They, at the beginning of the uh, Syrian civil war, this is now March 2011, uh, the prediction was that he wouldn't last two months. Uh, 
uh, wrong, um, but um, he he is a, a formidable and very serious throw, and he is an ally of Iran. And in the past, together with North Korea, he tried to create a military nuclear site for making nuclear weapons. This guy's no joke. Uh, he's the real deal. So what, when you were ambassador, was there no recourse with the Obama administration to say, don't just leave this as a vacuum, don't just leave it to Vladimir Putin and Iran to fill the vacuum? This is, you know, we, this is our neighbor. This, ex- this existentially threatens both of us. Well, I think I had to be very cautious. Keep in mind, America had engaged in two frustrating and ultimately unsuccessful wars in the Middle East area in Afghanistan and Iraq, and Israel did not want to be in the position uh, of saying to the United States, you should get involved in another Middle Eastern war. And as someone who had opposed the Iraq war, personally, I definitely didn't want to do that. Um, but on the other hand, we knew that America's withdrawal uh, from the Middle East would leave this vacuum. And it would fill with Russians. And, you know, the, the Obama administration said, well, we're not going to get involved like the, the Russians is because the R- Russians are because the Russians are going to get bogged down the quagmire of Syria. Well, wrong. They didn't. And um, and then the Turks come in and then ISIS comes in because no, just like as nature abhors a vacuum, so too uh, do uh, geostrategic <laughs> uh, politics. And, and it's going to fail. And um, and now we have some very difficult players. You know, as a um, in my last position, I was the deputy in the prime minister's office dealing with diplomacy, and I did a lot of state visits, and I did a lot of visits to um, to the Balkans, to the um, and the Baltic states. And they would say, well, we have the Russian army, you know, 200 kilometers away. And I said, what are you talking about? We have the, we have the Russian army 20 meters away on the other side of our border. And uh, we have a very complicated relationship with the Russians. Uh, on one hand, we have one of the largest Russian diasporas in the world. You know, we have Russian news here. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the Russian army's right there. Uh, it supports uh, Bashar al-Assad, who's an ally of, of Iran. And they, the Russians provide very sophisticated weaponry to our enemies. So it's a complicated relationship. Welcome to the Middle East. Welcome to the Middle East. Now, Israel is is a very, very different country than when it was when you you know declared your citizenship in 1979. There used to be very union-based, kibbutznik-type politics, and and uh, uh, you know with more than a whiff of, of socialism. There was a stretch of hyperinflation and the currency collapsing. You now look at how many Israeli companies are listed on the Nasdaq. You look at the Dan Sinor bestseller, uh, the Startup Nation, the number of uh, former Soviet Republic refugees who have come and brought their their PhDs and their engineering skills with them. Tell us how the country is working this other channel of diplomacy, if you will, through innovation and and commerce. I mean. I understand that there are uh, Arab countries that do not have relations with Israel, for example, that import their drip irrigation technology through third parties. That's all. That's true. Um, again, I, I was I had a, a front row seat for this as the as the deputy minister for diplomacy, and um, you know it's not widely remembered, but after the 1973 Yom Kippur War and the Arab oil boycott, by the way, led by Bahrain and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, um, uh, dozens of African countries cut off relations with us. And Israel had a very deep involvement in Africa and African development throughout the 50s and the 60s. It was Golda Meir's centerpiece. Very painful for us. Um, during the last couple of years, uh, African nations have literally stood in line to renew relations with us. And I would Rarely would a week go by that I did not host an African foreign minister or president or prime minister, and the requests were always the same. It always began with water, because Israel is by far, by far, uh, the world's leader in water desalinization and and water reclamation. We reclaim 90% of our water. After us, it's Spain with 13%. We're in a different league. They need water. They need food. We have high-tech agriculture. Um, they need students coming here. And it was just, it was one request after another. And what I learned was that high tech is the ultimate diplomatic tool. It, it can it can bridge virtually, virtually uh, any gap. Um, and uh, it done overwhelmingly throughout the Middle East with, you know, the, the very small exceptions of Iran and, and its allies. Um, and uh, e- even then, the Syrians have benefited from our high tech because we export to Syria through uh, some of our non-Jewish populations here. And during the Syrian civil war, uh, we took in uh, thousands of uh, wounded from Syria and treated them at our hospitals, which is the, the best medical care in the Middle East. What's going to happen in terms of the two-state solution? You haven't heard that for a while. Trump administration said he'll take one state 
all states, you know, it's kind of mucked up. Meanwhile, settlement building has continued. Areas have been annexed. We have discussed this broadly across the Middle East. This has been backburnered while other things have happened. And yes, that the world is in the throes of a pandemic of which is afflicting Iran and Israel. The world is, is really distracted. And yet at the same time, all of these diplomatic breakthroughs. Well, here again, I'm going to be controversial because I think that the, the current peace plan of this administration um, offers a route to a two-state solution. It, it's precisely why uh, the Israeli right rejects it. Um, I was called to the White House several times to talk about uh, my experience in the peace process because I go back so far uh, to Yitzhak Rabin in the early 90s. And um, and I, I, I warned the administration. I said, you think the Israeli left is going to oppose this? No, it's going to be the Israeli right. Because they know that in the Trump peace plan, there's a two-state solution. It's not the it's not the state that the Palestinians want, but it still stays. <laughs> and uh, and there are large segments of the Israeli uh, electorate uh, on the extreme right who, who oppose any state in any form. Um, and uh, and that's what's happened. Um, and uh, the the left is 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 really disappeared in this country because of. Uh, because of terrorism, because of rejection of previous peace offers um, in 2000, 2001, 2008, Israel offered to create a two-state solution. It was rejected by the Palestinians. Um, and then we withdrew from Gaza in 2005 and didn't get peace. All we got was rockets. So the left doesn't have uh, much of an argument to make today. Um, but the right is very powerful and the right opposes any, any two-state solution. I think that they, I, I, I would recommend uh, should an administration, sort of a Democratic administration, come in after uh, November, or after after January, after inauguration. Um, I would recommend that that they not throw out that peace plan immediately because there's a lot to be said about it. Is it true or false that Netanyahu is now the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's short history? True, very true. So 2009 to the present, and that would be his second tour of duty as prime minister, and he was finance minister in the intervening years. Uh, he's hung on kind of notoriously. There have been several elections, special elections and the like. And the knock, if you read the various papers on the left, on the right, in the United States, in the New Republic, is that he is enthralled to his right wing base, just as Donald Trump is, the orthodox community there. And then oddly enough, the some of the people here who might have more anti-Semitic uh, proclivities, such as the Unite the Right rally, and people were wearing MAGA hats, and you see some kipot in the, in the market in Jerusalem in the Shuk with Make America Great Again. Is that a simplistic read that these two uh, rulers are kind of hopelessly enthralled to their bases, that, that that's the best that they can do? Yeah, it's simplistic, and, and I'll tell you why. First of all, Netanyahu also served as prime minister in the 90s. So he's, he, it, 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 he, his total years uh, as prime minister have long surpassed um, the previous longest-serving uh, prime minister, which was David Ben-Gurion, our founding father. Um, it's simplistic because uh, Netanyahu uh, is kind of sui generis um, in not just in Israeli politics but in world politics. Think about it. We're a tiny country, but how many people know who Benjamin Netanyahu is? I mean, do you know who the prime minister of yeah, Sweden is, Norway, Denmark? These are countries that are more or less our size. Uh, you don't. You know Benjamin Netanyahu because he is kind of a bigger in life uh, figure. Um, he's an MIT and Harvard graduate. He's um, he's a former commando in Israel's Delta Force um, and decorated. He's an economist. Um, and he has uh, served in just about every position in government. Um, he's been in just even Knesset. He's been there for like 35 years. It's amazing. And politically, he's, he's just he's just a formidable person. He's physically very powerful. And I've worked close with him for years. It doesn't mean I agree with him on everything. And it doesn't believe that I think that he should go home at this point. I do. I think it's enough. Um, but he has transformed this country in so many ways. And when I came to this country in the 70s, this was a, a lower middle class, largely agrarian country. And the transformations of this country, that now can't lay claim to all of them. He has been the architect of a lot of it. And uh, through legislation, through deregulation, uh, through supporting, we, we support under his government, we support uh, high tech, the technological area, higher, to a higher degree than any other country in the world. And so it has been transformative. And, um, and by the way, P.S., he's kept us out of war. People forget that. We haven't had a major war under Netanyahu. The guy is, 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 is conflict averse, you should know. Doesn't like war for all the talk. So he's, his base... Um, it's very different. It's a base that's not necessarily ideological. It's a base that comes many from Jews from Eastern countries like uh, Jews who came from Iran. 
It's Jews, it's Israelis who were born into the Likud party because Likud is not a party, it's a family. Um, I guess if ask people who are Likud, when did you join Likud? He says, when I was one day old, born into Likud. Um, and because it's just very difficult to find someone to replace him. I will say this without any reservation, having worked with presidents, having worked with prime ministers and with foreign leaders, hmm. the job of prime minister of the state of Israel is simply the hardest job on the planet. And physically, it is hard for anybody to do because you do not sleep. You don't go on two-week golfing vacations like the president of the United States. You have no vacations whatsoever. You have no weekends. And, you know, you talk about team of rivals in the United States, you know, with the, the Lincoln and his cabinet. Uh, and Israeli prime minister, every member of his cabinet is the head of a party trying to overthrow the prime minister at every given time. So <laughs> it's totally relentless. To be able to do that um, physically, mentally, emotionally, is not easy. And in our neighborhood, we can't afford to, to give it to that, that job to someone who can't do it physically. And uh, it's interesting, you know, we have, uh, there's now a rotational government with Benny Gantz uh, as the head of the Blue and White Party. I know Benny quite well. He, he was the military attache in, in Washington with me. And um, Israelis are always commenting how tired he looks during his interviews. And uh, and that becomes an important political consideration here. Does the is the can the prime minister can he can he can he make it? Can he hold up? Well, what or where is the opposition to Netanyahu? I mean, I do recall in my in my reporting in Israel, it seems like Israelis love to complain about the water. We're not desalinizing enough, or we're doing this, or we're doing that, or or uh, the, the the state of political discourse or lack of discourse, or is there going to be another coalition government, or is parliament going to be broken up? Uh, even people who support him reluctantly, I, I noticed, like, didn't go out of their way to fawn about him. So how is it that an opposition figure did not, in, in light of the fact that, as you say, all these people always have knives out for the prime minister, I haven't heard from labor or Israel's left, it seems like, in more than a decade. Because they don't exist anymore. Labor may, probably won't even get into the next Knesset. The, the labor party that founded this country uh, may not make it into the next Knesset. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in Jaffa, and under my window, pretty much every night, we have major demonstrations against Netanyahu. And um, and they are they are fervid. They are, I think, heartfelt, uh, but they are disjointed. They're fractured. There are people who are demanding the prime minister's resignation because he's facing three corruption charges uh, in court. He's going to have to start appearing in court in January uh, several times a week. Uh, there are anarchists. There are communists. There are left wing peaceniks. Um, and there's no unified opposition against him, and there's no figure who has emerged to unify that opposition against him. There's no one of that stature. And again, it's a very, very hard act to follow. Um, there are some very fine people in Israeli politics, but um, I'm hard-pressed to say this one person could do it. I have, a, I have a, an image of Netanyahu in my mind. Uh, three o'clock in the morning, he's sitting in front of a bank of telephones, like four or five telephones, and they are ringing in succession. Picks up one, there's an infiltration of Hezbollah in the north. Picks up another, Hamas is firing rockets in the south. A third one, uh, the teachers' union's going on strike the next day. <laughs> and these, these phones are going off one after another at three o'clock in the morning. Um, a normal human being will collapse under that. And, uh, and Israelis know it. They just know it. It's hard. How did Israel, which uh, people are always, you know, this was one knock I heard from an Israeli-American, that this is a country where you're always at the ready to be called in for an incursion or uh, our borders being invaded or something, that when you get the order to lock down, you listen. It isn't optional. It isn't open to kind of mass or no mass. And yet Israel is getting a lot of press for having botched its COVID intervention, that you've seen many waves come back. Well, one wave, yeah. We, we were very good on the first wave, starting in, in, in April through um, through late May uh, to June. Uh, the second one we botched. We, we lifted too fast. Um, people did not understand COVID enough. It turns out the, the, the sort of the, the original sin was opening up the schools. And it turned out that, that young children um, can uh, pass on this disease much more than, than was originally thought. Um, but we've learned. So we went through a second lockdown which wasn't as disciplined, with lots of controversy. Um, and, uh, and now the numbers are down again, at a, at precisely at the time when numbers are going up in the United States and Europe. And uh, I think at the end of the day, Robin, nobody knows how to deal with this damn thing. And until we get a, a, 
uh, vaccine. Um, Israel announced yesterday that it, it will have a vaccine in another 10 months. We're going into human trials uh, and other you know, corporations, um, Turn and, and J&J are announcing that they're making progress. I think that's sure. when you're going to see the big, the big change is going to happen. Now, Michael Oren, in the few minutes we have left with you, tell us about your foray into fiction writing. I mean, I look at your bio. You've been in the Maccabee Games. You've been a diplomat. You've been an author. You've been a historian, uh, uh, U.S. citizen, Israeli citizen, joint citizen, renounce your citizenship, just back and forth and, you know, 100,000 different uh, reincarnations. What about this one? Well, I've actually started as a fiction writer. I started writing uh, poetry when I was 12, 13 years old. I, I published my first poem in in, uh, in sixteen in seventeen magazine when I was a kid, uh, believe it or not, and uh, and went on to write uh, uh, screenplays. I, I uh, won the PBS National Filmmakers Contest and went off to Hollywood. And I was uh, Orson Welles' assistant, believe it or not. Uh, oh my! Yeah, that, that, there's another story. Uh, but I had this uh, Israel thing in my head. I had to go to Israel. I had to be a paratrooper. I had to work on a kibbutz. Um, and, uh, and, and it went on from there. Um, so I've always been a fiction writer. This is actually my third work of fiction. And, um, but it's different. It, it's 51 stories and they're all different. A lot of story, short story collections are, are very similar. They'll be about, a, you know, a, a town in Maine or a town in, you know, Mississippi or the Vietnam War. This is 51 stories that are completely different. They are mystery stories and ghost stories and love stories and war stories and little diplomacy, a little Hollywood, uh, faith stories, and from different perspectives. Um, and yes, they draw on my various experiences. Um, I've been in uh, several wars. All of my war experiences go into a, a short story that is literally a page and a half. Um, there's a Hollywood story. There's a, there's a, there's a Washington story, which is very funny about social climbers, climbers in Washington. Uh, my experience as a father, as a, a grandfather now, which you know, uh, all come into the, into this book. I've, I've put it by, you know, that part, that big chunk of my soul into it. Um, immensely liberating, I must tell you. Um, in Israel, as in the United States, if you're in high office, you can't publish, you can write, but you can't publish. So for years, I couldn't publish anything. But I still got up very early in the morning to write these stories. And so these stories, for the most part, were written while I was in government. And uh, and this was my freedom. This was my my, my cry of freedom in the morning. And uh, for those of you who are locked down out there and, and uh, you've, you've exhausted Netflix, um, I, I guarantee you will go on an extraordinary journey with these with these stories. Yeah, the collection of short stories is called The Night Archer, available now. Michael Oren, uh, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Uh, you're always welcome on this show. My pleasure. It's been, it's been, been terrific. Thank you for hosting me. Be well. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this show on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Again, we're now on WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C. Sunday mornings at 11. Reach out to me on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. 